2: Go behind the scenes and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra
2: cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and...
0: This episode of Stuff I Don't Want You to Know is brought to you by Alienware. During
1: Dell Tech Fest, score game changing innovations with limited time deals on select next gen Alienware gaming tech.
2: New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor,
0: featuring awe inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential.
1: Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select game Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel.
2: They call me Ben. We are joined as always with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. Long-time listeners, or recent listeners, welcome. Uh, you'll notice that we are continuing a bit of a maritime trend today. We didn't plan this, it just happened. Uh, we're tackling one of the oldest oceanic questions in human existence. For thousands and thousands of years, human beings have both feared and worshipped the ocean, as well as, of course, the things believed to live within it. So fast forward to the current day, Uh, good for us human species, we have learned a great deal about the ocean over the past several millennia, and we still rely on it for food. Nowadays, we can pretty often travel across it safely, but we have by no means conquered the ocean. In fact, we know more about the moon right now than we do about Earth's oceans. The briny deep, in short, is still flooded with mysteries. That was not an intentional pun, but here's the point. Today's question, is it possible that sea serpents the legendary sea monsters of old, still exist today? Uh, To answer this question, we have to learn what little we do know about the ocean already. So here are the facts.
1: And just to be clear, when we're talking about the ocean and oceans, we we really mean the oceans, the seas, the places where there's briny water, right? Where it's very deep. That's what we're, we're referring to today. So anywhere in the world,
2: not just in one particular place. Right. Yeah. So not just the Pacific, not just maybe the Indian Ocean, but the the whole shebang. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? All, like literally all of the water, or as we'll come to find out, 97% of all the water. So we've often heard people say things like, you know, we know less about the ocean than we do about outer space. Uh, that, that's a little misleading, but we definitely do know more about Earth's moon than we do about Earth's oceans. I mean, when you think about it, the numbers get weird. If you believe the official stories, that's for a different episode, we've sent 12 people to the moon since about 1969. Yet, in comparison, we've only sent three people to the deepest part of the ocean, uh, one of them being James Cameron, who makes an appearance in here. Uh, as a matter of fact, the old Hollywood legend is that James Cameron mainly wanted to do Titanic as a way of getting support for his trip uh, to the Marianas Trench. Which is very cool. Yeah, he had a cute it.
0: little like uh, pod thing that he went down in, right? Like a... Uh, Kind of a future-y look-in-under-the-sea mini-sub with, like, grabber-claw arms. Or maybe I'm mm. hyperbolizing here.
2: No, no, no. That's a pretty good description. I mean, that's that's the only way to get down there. And those, those people who've gone to the deepest part of the ocean, again, we're only counting the people who came back you know it's it's completely plausible that a lot of people died and their bodies eventually drifted to some very deep part of the sea floor well and the ones that did come back were all completely mad there we go nice setup that yeah yeah there we know that there despite the fact that there have only been a very very small amount of people who went to what we call the deepest part of the ocean we know that there is a lot a lot down there. Uh, the ocean takes up about seventy-one percent of Earth's surface, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, whose research we lean on a lot in this episode, they note that about ninety-five percent of that oceanic surface, uh, the the seafloor, they call it unexplored, and. Mm, it depends on what you mean by explored, uh, but I, I, I think it's a fair way to look at it, especially when we learn more about the stats and geography of the ocean.
0: Quick question, guys. Do you think they worked backwards from that acronym to like what words were going to be in it? You know, because Noah, Noah's Ark and all that. And they're like, OK, we got to make this Noah thing work. It's such a good image.
2: I thought about that, but I didn't. I I, I didn't nail down the story because it would be my speculation. It just, it feels like if they're trying to purposely spell Noah, then they would have done a better job. There's so many things that begin with H.
0: Well, some mysteries are just better left unsolved. Um, So it's true. Uh, What we loosely describe as the ocean in swishy quotation fingers has a volume of around one point three three two billion cubic kilometers. I say that doubly because the word is spelled out several times in this uh, research materials that I'm looking at just to drive home. That's a lot of cubic kilometers. My friends, uh, and that works out to be about 352 quintillion gallons of water. That's just like a, a completely unfathomable uh, number right there uh, in my mind, at least. And that's 97% of the water on the entire planet. Uh, Another two percent is locked up in glaciers and ice caps, and a tiny part is in uh, water vapor floating through the atmosphere, and an even tinier part is inside of us all. Oh man,
2: that's it was there all along. It was there all along, you guys. It's the majority of the human body, actually. About up to sixty percent of you, specifically you, if you're human and listening to this, about sixty percent of your body is water.
1: We are water beings on a water planet, gentlemen. And uh, and when you, we're talking about, you know, the, the actual volume of the oceans, we're talking about 95% of the ocean floor, quote, unquote, unexplored, right? Because we're talking about actually going and exploring there the way you would the moon or another place. Um, it's crazy to imagine that that's just the floor part. And then there's all that volume of water with all that depth and think about attempting to explore somehow the surface area at every depth that you possibly can. And and it just feels like it would be impossible for humans to do. Because the average depth of the ocean is 3,795 meters, or a little over 12,450 feet. And just like the Earth's surface, Life is not distributed evenly across the ocean, right? You're, you don't <laughs> you don't just have uh, whales every X meters or something, or fish every X centimeters, whatever it would be. Um, they could be anywhere
2: within that depth. Just for comparison, there, when we're talking about the average depth of the world's oceans, uh, consider let's see, Matt. The number you gave us is average depth of 3,795 meters or a little little north of 12,450 feet. The current tallest uh, tallest building, tallest skyscraper in the world, the Burj Khalifa, is 2,716 and a half feet. So tiny, tiny, tiny in comparison to not the deepest part of the ocean, but just the global average. This is a big place. We have quote-unquote, mapped the ocean floor. Good job for our species. Uh, but we did it at a really, really low resolution. Uh, I'm not going to say we cut some corners, because again, it's a very big place. But if you look at the uh, overall mapping of the ocean floor, and you, you take all of the scientific progress that every single civilization has made up to now, the... Most of that ocean floor mapping has a resolution of five kilometers or three miles. That means that if something is so ridiculous, but that means that if something is smaller than three miles big, then we could totally miss it. So that's like that's that's the threshold for size. So just to set up our question or address our question a little more here if a sea monster existed and there was a breeding population uh and they were less than 3 miles <laughs> big not even like not even long they were just big if they were less than 3 miles big uh then it's possible that we could have missed them
1: think about all the crashed extraterrestrial craft that could be down there we'd have no idea they're not 3 miles long well maybe Matt, are you proposing aquatic uh, extraterrestrials?
0: Yes, USOs, my friend. Oh, my gosh. I don't even know how to start wrapping my head around that idea, but probably a discussion for another day. Check out our episode.
2: Yeah, we have a previous episode on these USOs, uh, and I don't know. I, maybe we should revisit that one because there's there's some new information I found on that. But, uh, yeah. Clearly, I should revisit that one because I do not recall its existence at all. (laughs) But there's a, but uh, you're right, Noel. That's an episode maybe for uh, another day, which you can find now wherever you get your favorite podcast. So this mapping. To it's something that can be misleading, I think, when you first hear it. It's kind of like saying radio telescope. A radio telescope gives you information about space, but it doesn't necessarily give you a visual picture. And this ocean floor mapping doesn't necessarily give us what you would think of as a visual picture. The job is accomplished using radar. It measures the sea's surface. So it gives us this kind of rough, topography, the idea of where the bumps and the dips occur. And that's pretty cool, right? But that means that the maps of the ocean floor still are not detail, as detailed as some of the maps of planets in our solar system, which is insane. We know a little bit about Mars. If this holds true, we know a little bit about, more about the surface of Mars than we do about the surface of the ocean. Nuts. Nuts okay
0: so just for like a you know audio uh, visual aid um, let's just talk a little bit about the layout um, so just like the surface of the globe uh, the uh, subterranean globe I guess we could call it um, is divided into different zones uh, or regions. Um, Each one has their own unique ecosystem, uh, specific creatures that are native to each of these areas adapted to live in these particular conditions. Um, Of these zones uh, in the ocean, there are five. Uh, And we'll start from closest to the surface and and dive down. I'll start with uh, this one because it's really fun to say. The epipelagic or sunlight zone. Uh, And that ranges from the surface of the water to 656 feet below. It gets plenty of light, plenty of heat, and of course, all of those things decrease as you head further down. And this is where all the cute little babies live—the uh, fun, you know, cute kind of Finding Nemo-esque figures of the sea. Um, a lot of oceanic life that humans actually interact with, like uh, sharks. And, sure, they're 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 cute in their own way. Let's be nice, um, but also like coral reefs and and, and all these amazing built-up layers of, of coral. Uh, and um, it's very much like think of it as like the the metro area of the sea, you know, this is where like like the Tokyo or the New York City or you know the
1: Atlanta. Yeah, nice. And, uh, and then if you go down a little bit further, you get to the twilight zone or the mesopelagic zone. It's between six hundred and fifty six feet and three thousand two hundred and eighty one feet. There's still a lot of stuff living in this area, but stuff's getting a little different, a little little weirder. Mm, like wolf eels sure sure you're familiar with those wolf eels uh you can hear them howling in, in the seas no matter where you are swordfish uh scary terrifying creatures that you can uh you can hunt for fish for them but it's a difficult process the light at this point as you're going down is dying sunlight is getting fainter and fainter as you submerge If
0: you mapped all this on a chart, you could definitely correlate depth with weirdness. Just putting that out there real quick.
2: I want to point out uh, for anyone who is hearing of wolf eels for the first time, uh, please do yourself a favor. Use your uh, browser of choice to check out some images of wolf eels. They do not look like what you might assume uh, a wolf or an eel looks like. Uh, I had to put them in there. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, yeah, their life is getting weird with it. And you uh, can't actually hear them howling. I, I apologize. I was joking. Well, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, so let's continue this journey into the murk. Uh, now we're stepping into the midnight zone to, uh, bastardize the phrase from that song, we're at the bathopologic zone between 3,281 feet to 12,124 feet. This part of the ocean is like that old line from Method Man. It's a cold world. You have to bring your own heat. This zone is largely dark. This is where you start to see some sea creatures emitting their own light through phosphorescence. Uh, it's also like that Queen song, Dum, 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 dum. These creatures are under pressure. The pressure in this zone reaches almost 6,000 pounds per square inch. And that's just because of what you alluded to earlier, Matt. There is so much water on top of you here if you, if you live in this area. And then uh, next to this, we would I, our next step, should we continue James Cameron-esking down into the depths, is what I think personally is the coolest zone. Is it cool as
0: ice, Ben? Sort of like that uh, Queen song was
2: repurposed to be? <laughs> uh, it's very cold. It's, it's not quite freezing because the water is still liquid, but it's very, very cold.
1: You're going to have to convince me that it's cooler than high-pressure bioluminescence, but let's do this. Right. So this is the abysso
0: zone. Did I get that right? I think I got it pretty close. And that's between 13,124 feet and 19,686 feet. Uh, and as the aforementioned vanilla ice reference implies, this uh, is a very, very, very cold part of the uh, the deep sea with no natural light. Over 75% of the ocean floor is in this zone. So this is essentially like, you know, for all intents and purposes,
2: the bottom, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, loosely speaking, this is, this is one of the things I thought about a lot uh, in younger days. I, I always thought, Where's the bottom of the continents? You know what I mean? Where can you walk? Like if you could walk on the ocean floor and you could see, oh, there's where the floor has kind of a corner and the wall there, that's, well, that's, you know, North America or that's Australia. Uh, you would find it in the abyssopelagic zone. That's... Um, that's the the place from which sprang the continents, but it's still not the bottom it's just most of the bottom, right because uh, just like the uh, non-water covered surface of the planet, there are peaks there are valleys in the ocean we call these trenches.
1: Yes, the Hadal pelagic zone that lies. Down, way, way down, 19,686 feet to 36,100 feet. Now imagine that. What did we say the average was around 12,000, 13,000 feet?
2: That's correct, 12,450 feet.
1: So now we're way, way down there. And the pressure in these areas is insane. It's more than 11,000 318 tons per square meter, or essentially think about this, the equivalent of one person trying to support the weight of 50 giant jumbo jets. You know, there's, we all know somebody who can bench press one jumbo jet, oh, so. <laughs> but, but imagine doing 50.
2: Yikes! Yeah. It's, it's, it's impossible. It's a, it, you know, it calls to mind the old mythological figure of Atlas holding the world atop his shoulders. Uh, and mythology plays a huge role in today's episode as well the the actual depth here gets tricky because it depends on you know the trenches or the valleys in the area. Of course the Marianas Trench, which is the deepest area of the ocean to ever be explored by humans, sits at we would it, it, it's almost, I, it's definitely 35,797 feet deep. Uh, but that might not be the entire story because again, we don't, there's a ton of stuff we don't know about the ocean. Uh, just for comparison, like we did with Burj Khalifa, uh, the tallest mountain in the world on the, on Earth's dry surface is Mount Everest. That stands at 29,026 feet. So this means that the deepest ocean trench as far as we know, is deeper than the tallest mountain on this planet is high. Uh, there, there's a even with com- scale comparisons, this quickly becomes mind-boggling. We're just telling you this to give you the map, the lay of the land. Now we have to talk about the things that live within this uh, strange, strange world. Estimates show that somewhere between 50 to 80 percent of all life on Earth is found under the ocean.
1: And we'll tell you about that life right after a quick word from our sponsor.
7: craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's radios iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free
6: hi i'm cindy crawford and i'm the founder of meaningful beauty well i don't know about you but like i never liked being told oh wow you look so good for your age like why even bother saying that
2: Now over the uh over the commercial break, I'm sure many of us had adventures. Perhaps some of us are on the ocean right now, and you were probably wondering, hey, fifty to eighty percent? That's a hell of a range. Hasn't yeah. somebody done any kind of more robust research on this? They
1: were probably also thinking, Wow, should I really be out right now? Especially <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am on the ocean, kind of isolated, but still. <laughs> but yes, Ben uh I mean, really, we we keep talking about this. Just given the sheer size of the oceans, of the seas, what we're talking about here, it's impossible to know exactly how many different species live out there and, and all the different types of species, right? And humans... The scientists, people who've been studying this for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, estimate that between a third, maybe two thirds of the things that live in the oceans have yet to be classified. Maybe they've been spotted, a few of them, once or twice, but they haven't actually been, you know, written down and cataloged as, hey, this is another new species, but even more just have never been seen.
2: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I love that you point that out there, Matt, because we know that... There are tales of plenty, big fish stories abound, but having something scientifically classified means that someone has been able to fit it into a taxonomy of some sort. This is related to these other things that we know. And this is kind of where it lives and what it does uh, before it dies. So we, ha- we, we might not know 66% of that easily. Uh, we do know for sure. Two things first, we know that populations of undiscovered maritime animals are probably in decline the way that populations of discovered and classified maritime animals are. secondly, and pretty disturbingly, we know that we don't know everything that's out there, but we have a wealth of uh, scientific research and a wealth of historical allegations, if you want to call folklore something a little more spicy, and what's interesting about all of humanity's research into the world beneath the boats uh, is this. It, It quickly descends into legend, into mythology. Sailors have been reporting tales of gigantic sea monsters since pretty much the first time human beings got onto boats, got into the ocean, and then made it back to land alive.
1: Just think about the first time someone saw a whale. The first time someone saw a whale while on a ship. Whoa. That must have been mind-blowing. Because you have no way of imagining even what it is when you observe a creature, a sea creature like that. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about here. The early visions of something underneath the water that we don't know what it is can you imagine being that first person to see the
0: whale and then immediately after being stricken by awe and majesty of it all thinking man it sure would be cool to murder that thing with a pointy stick
1: yeah <laughs> you yeah, have murder it, it might be a lot of food perhaps you know
2: that, that could be a motivation one of the first encounters where it was what if, if what we know about humans remains true then probably one of the first encounters was somebody seeing it uh while they were on the shore from a distance and then uh finding it was edible maybe one washed up on the shore which could happen even before the days of widespread sonar
1: absolutely so let's let's get into some of the specific examples of strange reports of gigantic things within the water now the first one Uh, We're going to talk about here is something called Leviathan. This is probably a word you've heard before. For me, I got it from Magic Cards and the Bible. It's a fantastic word. It's been used in the past to describe all kinds of different purported massive sea creatures. Leviathan was described in the Bible as a giant, primordial, sometimes multi-headed sea serpent of sorts, It makes six appearances in the Old Testament, and according to biblical scholars, in some places within the Bible, Leviathan, the word, refers to an actual physical creature, and other times it functions more as a symbolic representation of God's power or wrath, which, you know, those two different things many times are where arguments lie within translations of the Bible. Um, I was wondering, guys... Could I just give you a couple different descriptions of some of the Greek uh, mythology descriptions of sea monsters just really fast? Please. But can you slow it down a little bit, Matt? Not too fast. I want to be able to keep up. Uh, okay. Well, I'm going to give you a quote of a, a monstrous fish from that was written in 1555 by Olus Magus. Quote, their forms are horrible their heads square all set with prickles and they have long sharp horns round about like a tree rooted up by the roots they are 10 or 12 cubits long very black with huge eyes the apple of the eye is of one cubit and it is red and fiery colored which in the dark night appears to fishermen afar from underwaters as a burning fire having hairs like goose feathers
0: what is that describing, Matt? That doesn't sound like any uh living sea creature
1: that I'm familiar with. It's uh describing a giant monster fish. Yeah.
0: That's what I thought. Just, make, just making sure I was keeping up, okay? All right, what else you got?
1: But it's thought that perhaps what was actually seen there was a giant squid just due to other descriptions.
0: Well, but it's got it's got it's got horns like trees though. What what on a giant squid has horns like trees? <laughs> I don't know. What's a cubit? That's a big measurement, right? I mean, I know it's like an ancient form of measurement, but it's like a, like a
1: yard, right, or something along those lines. I believe. Uh, we've talked about that in a couple other episodes. Exactly what a cubit is in the measurement. Uh, oh, it's like the length of your arm. Yeah, that's For, what it from was. from your elbow to your to your fingers. Okay. Yeah, uh, just one more here from the Odyssey. If you guys are cool with it, there's a sea monster called the uh, Skila uh, or Skia. Uh, Skyla maybe I can't I can't remember from my days of learning about Greek myths but uh, here's here's the quote her legs and there are 12 are like great tentacles unjointed and upon her serpent necks are born six heads like nightmares of ferocity and triple serried rows of fangs and deep gullets of black death half her length she sways her heads in air mm. Ooh, again deep gullets
0: of black death I like
1: that one really creepy. But again, it sounds a little bit like it could be a a giant squid that was observed and just there was no understanding of what it was.
2: And so there are multiple, multiple examples. Uh, You know, typically in the West, we, we tend to think of uh, things that occurred in the Atlantic or Mediterranean or Middle East, uh, you know, from Middle Eastern cultures, Phoenicians and so on. Uh, one example from Nordic folklore would, of course, be the Kraken. I think a lot of us were waiting for the Kraken to show up. This was a cryptid, before the word existed, uh, wreaking havoc from Norway to Greenland. But the vast majority of people of Nordic people believed in this thing, and many thought they had seen it. Its MO was to attack vessels with its tentacles wrapping around a ship, and if unable to pull the ship down, this creature would begin circling the vessel, creating a maelstrom or a vortex that would drag the ship beneath the waves. Legends said the Kraken could devour uh, the entire crew of a ship in a single go. One of our first documented allegations of this creature's existence uh, dates back to a story written in eleven eighty c e by a King Zver of norway and this is I want to point out here, and I think I talked about this in a previous episode. the idea of a creature devouring an entire ship might seem outlandish now, but we have to remember the average size of a ship was much smaller back then. So what would have been considered a big ship attacked and destroyed by a fish is, you know, it's not as big as the mega yachts of today. But still, these people, again, they're people, they're as smart as anyone listening uh, today in 2020, right? Uh, The brain, the hardware hasn't evolved all that much. So we have to ask, if these things are so dangerous, why would you mess with them at all? In the case of the kraken, it's because there was enormous profit or potential for profit. The kraken was accompanied by large, large, ginormous schools of fish that would follow it around. And when it surfaced, when it breached the water, fish cascaded off the creature's back and that meant that if your boat was around all you had to do was literally have a net in the water and then you could get more fish then than you would in months otherwise
0: pretty cool that's a kind of a net positive sea monster side effect i'd be net good positive. with that <laughs> oh man i didn't even catch that uh but no I, I, you know the kraken definitely sounds like a giant squid no
2: yeah we see a lot of descriptions of tentacles. You know what I mean? We see a lot of descriptions of a pretty aggro, pretty big, many armed thing. And of course, at this point, finally, getting to say this on air. Hail Hydra. Uh, shout out to the myth of old uh, more on that later. but you know, that's another that's another Greek myth, I believe in, in the story of Hydra, the idea is that you lop off one one head. It's a multi-headed beast. You lop off one head, and two grow in its place. It's also done a lot for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I'm sure is what the Greeks were thinking about when they wrote that.
0: No question. They were laying the groundwork. Uh, so next we have um, something from Japan, uh, a creature, a sea wrecking creature known as the Umi Bozu. That was rumored to um, attack specifically in calm waters where it would rise up, creating this kind of self-contained maelstrom and described as a black phantom with two huge eyes. Okay. Just, Phantom, I'm picturing, like, ghost-shaped, you know? So let's just, again, we're going to come back to this. Um, two huge eyes. And in the lore of the time, this uh, Omi bozu was thought to be a, a spirit of some sort uh, rather than an actual corporeal creature. And the only way to s- escape this thing um was to kind of almost like distract it like a cat uh you know with uh, like a like a mouse toy or like a feather um but they would use what they referred to as a bottomless barrel and I had to off mic ask Ben to clarify what the hell that is and it's it's pretty simple when you think about it a bottomless barrel is a barrel with no bottom uh a cylinder Um, you take out both ends and it becomes bottomless and infinite. Uh, And then it would just like be all, what the hell is this? I got it. Oh, my gosh. And then you just sail away uh, while it's confused.
2: That's the thing about folklore, right? We see the truth, but told slant, as Emily Dickinson would later go on to note. What's odd about this? And what differentiates this folklore from a lot of other folklore throughout human civilization, I almost said human and pre-human civilization, but no spoilers, that's a different episode, is that the folklore here does have often provable, I will say provable seeds of the truth. There's the little grain of sand uh, that makes the the pearl of legend. Research shows the ocean has indisputably been home to enormous, dangerous creatures in the distant past. It's home to enormous, dangerous creatures now, of course, but it was also home to things like the Megalodon.
1: Uh, yes, the Megalodon. That was a big old shark, three times the size of a great white with teeth as big as your hand. Woo-hoo.
2: Hope they're really extinct. Oh, man. I don't know, Matt. I I, I kind of hope they're still around not around me specifically but just like out in the world megalodoning even don't if they need were... a... look, <laughs> you look you
1: said it yourself the populations of sea creatures are declining what's that megalodon doing other than just slurping up sea creatures <laughs> or mashing them violently with its teeth that are the size of fists
2: <laughs> my heart goes out to sharks they're amazing animals if you look at the mechanism of their evolution and adaptation. And also their existence seems very stressful to me since the way that their gills are structured, they can't can't stand still. They always have to keep moving and forcing water through the gills. It's stressful. But even if a megalodon was around now, it would not be the largest creature. Uh, The ocean is home to proven, like, kaiju-size things. Right? The, like the blue whale is sorry, dinosaurs, officially the largest single animal ever confirmed to exist ever.
0: Ooh, uh, by the way, you guys, I remember there was an episode a while back where space whales came up, and I, I was trying to rack my brain like, where have I seen space whales? And I said, I thought it was this artist, this French artist, Mobius, and then I thought it was maybe Salvador Dali or something. And a listener wrote in and said it was actually from an episode of Futurama. Uh, I wish I remember the listener's name, but if you're hearing this, thank you, listener. Uh, my brain was uh, was eating itself over that one, basically. But yeah, it's true. And I, you know, I've I've mentioned that I'm also uh, I have an abiding fear of large things that lurk beneath the depths, and that I often have had dreams where I feel myself as this speck in this massive ocean with like huge, unseen things kind of lurking about, and then like a whale will come up under me and just sort of scoop me up, and it doesn't eat me. It's just more this like kind of fear of its sheer size and it's true the blue whale is absolutely massive i mean you're gonna know it when it comes up under you in the ocean or when you see it hopefully from the safety of like you know one of those tours those boat tours um a hundred people can fit into its mouth not its guts its mouth uh its heart is the size of a small car Maybe not even a small car, Ben. What do you think? A medium car? Like a, like a mid-sized SUV?
2: It's, it's a car that could comfortably seat four to five people.
0: Got it. Okay. Um, and the beat of that heart uh, can be detected from two miles away. But uh, we've got some other things on the list of, of, of massive uh, underwater dwelling creatures. Things like sperm whales, the whale shark, the basking shark, and of course, our pal, and yours, the giant Pacific octopus, not to mention the lion's mane jellyfish, which can reach uh, more than 120 feet or 36.6 meters in
1: length. But that lion's mane is mostly creepy tentacles, right? Or not tentacles, creepy. Are they called tentacles in a in a jellyfish? They're um, tendrils. Tendrils. That's what it about, is. Yeah, yeah. Terrifying lion's mane tendrils. <laughs> Those really freak me out. Did, did jellyfish give you guys the same kind of feelings when you're thinking about swimming in the ocean? I think they're beautiful to look
0: at in an aquarium tank, but yeah, I mean they'd have, they definitely because they're they're stingy boys, right? I mean they will they will mess you up, and then you got to pee on yourself.
2: Not not all jelly hashtag not all jellyfish right uh, are poisonous, but I. I personally, I love them. I think it's like watching a cloud underwater or, uh, you know, a nebula, uh, through a telescope. Uh, also jellyfish, at least one tiny species of jellyfish occupies a top 10 position in Ben's list of top 10 animals because it's functionally immortal. You remember that one, Matt, it, uh, it grows up. And then if it's injured or something, it returns to a juvenile phase and lives its life again. Uh, we did, a, we did an episode on real-life immortality uh, a number of years ago now, and uh, there is real-life immortality, at least for some animals, and they're all pretty crappy versions of immortality. So, uh, but yes. I, yeah. will,
0: I will say the jellyfish outside of their, uh, their waters, they don't hold up so well. They're super blobby and like like a thing that you'd want to step over you know on the beach, and if they are stingy ones, you definitely would want to step over them. but it just goes to show how specifically adapted they are for life in the ocean, as as the case with with all of the creatures we're talking about today they they don't they cannot hold up outside of the water
1: but some of those Manowars are very difficult to detect, and they've got really long tendrils, and you'd never know it was there and and it could kill humans okay, uh, maybe I just have a weird thing with jellyfish
2: well well also uh that's not to sound like a jerk but one of the reasons i really wanted to hit the idea of specificity of adaptation is should humans be under the water how far should we be under the water you know what i mean like if you're mm, i i don't want to like victim blame or anything because i know life is crazy and everybody's the main character of their own story but uh the, but maybe, maybe jellyfish and, and, uh, attacking leviathans are a sign that we should, uh, we shouldn't go too far into the depths. I mean, the more you think about it, it makes sense to ask, could there still be enormous creatures out there in the brine? One of the things we talked about off air. As we were diving into this episode, it uh, was Jules Verne, of course, his famous 1870 novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Don't think too much about the unit of measurement there. Just enjoy the poetic title. There's There's a quote here from Verne that applies to this episode. And it's this, either we do know all the varieties of beings, which people, our planet, or we do not. If we do not know them all, if nature still has secrets in the deeps for us, nothing is more conformable to reason than to admit the existence of fishes or cetaceans of other kinds or even of new species. So could uh, sea monsters be real?
0: We'll, uh, We'll dive right into that after a quick sponsor break.
7: craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free
6: hi i'm cindy crawford and i'm the founder of meaningful beauty well i don't know about you but like i never liked being told oh wow you look so good for your age like why even bother saying that
2: Here's where it gets crazy, and it does get crazy. Could see monsters be real. This genuinely depends on how you define monster. If we're talking about monsters, as in creatures of monstrous size, then our odds of finding one understandably go down, but they don't go down as far as you might think because we still have a lot to learn about the ocean, but we're learning more about it now than ever before.
1: Yes, that is correct. Numerous governments and their militaries are able to detect the movement of very large objects from far away when it comes to things submerged in the ocean. And as we talked about on our episode that we covered not that long ago about sonar and its effects on marine animals, Earth's oceans essentially have like roaming detection networks in the form of submarines. Which is very, very true, and commercial sh- uh, shipping vessels, and there's also purported technology that maybe the U.S. military and other militaries have mic'd up the oceans to a to a large degree. So there's confirmed. L- <laughs> <laughs> I think it's confirmed. <laughs> I think it is confirmed too. I, I know it is confirmed at least from the U.S.'s side, but I wonder how many other countries have something similar in place.
2: I mean, yeah, that's a very good point, Matt. And We essentially have some form of roaming detection networks. They're meant to detect other works of humanity more so than other animals, but they work. That's why we spent billions building them, and we still have found huge, occluded, disturbing things. So... One thing that was tough for us to not spoil in the here are the facts portion of today's show is that the source of many many uh, sea serpent and sea monster myths across the uh, across the centuries uh, turns out probably to be based in a real thing: the colossal or the giant squid. Today it's known as Architeuthis dux. Uh, it's As old as like rumors of this are as old as the first days of sailing, honestly. Uh, But for centuries, the only proof we had was really creepy. Really circumstantial, disturbing stuff, nearly unidentifiable carcasses wash ashore. the lone survivor of a shipwreck shows up with you know like with missing crew members and a nineteen foot tentacle that's rotting in the sun and 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 then we find you know giant known creatures, especially sperm whales in the in the era of whaling, right you know, the Moby Dick days uh, and and beyond, you would find whales that had scars, like gigantic sucker marks that were wrought by some uh, unknown animal. Or you would find these gigantic beaks. They looked like kaiju beaks. They looked like the beaks of a squid that no god would ever put on this planet, right? Because these are very religious people finding these too. Uh, And it wasn't until maybe in your lifetime, fellow conspiracy realists, that scientists finally got a photograph of a real-life kraken. And that was just like one blurry paparazzi under the seas photo,
1: you know? That was, yeah, that was alive, right? It was, oh, there's one swimming around. It wasn't a carcass. It wasn't some remnant. It was an actual thing swimming around. And then think about this. It wasn't until the, you know— the Mayan apocalypse uh, i'm sorry uh, 2012 when we acquired actual video footage of a live giant squid existing in its, in its environment um, because there was there was another time earlier than that where a giant squid was i believe caught essentially and pulled up to the surface by the um, japanese fishing vessel that that was the one we were just talking about right the two was that 2006 maybe I think something around that time where one got pulled up from, from the depths to the surface just in the act of a large fishing operation. But yeah, 2012, 2013 as well, we acquired actual video footage of a giant squid. ooh, And it was creepy and you know if
0: you guys have ever seen that that uh noah baumbach movie the squid and the whale uh it references a diorama that you can see at the museum of natural history in new york of a massive sperm whale essentially doing battle with one of these kraken like creatures and it's pretty epic to to look at um still on display there as far as i know
2: yeah it was there last time i went i love that museum it's uh I don't know. A lot of that museum is dark when you get into the exhibits, I like dark museums. These creatures like dark areas of the water. Uh, they live in very deep areas of the ocean. As far as we can tell, again, we know very little about them. They're anywhere from 1300 to 3000 feet down. Uh, we know that they can grow larger than some whales. The only predator of theirs we know about is the sperm whale. Uh, But we don't know how large these things can get yet. We know that they are stronger than an elephant. Uh, We know that a bite from their beak has enough force to sever steel cables. Uh, This means that if one of these made it to the surface in the days of wooden boats, that boat would, in short, well, it's a family show. So I'm just going to say they would be in very deep trouble.
1: Yeah, well, what if you're... What if your ship has a steel hull? It doesn't seem to matter. These dang beaks can go through anything.
2: (laughs) You could puncture that. Yeah, just stay on their good side. I mean, the craziest thing about this, it's a real-life sea monster. It fits some of the qualities we described, right? And... We know so very little about it. We still have a lot of questions about large sea animals that everybody's kind of familiar with, right? There's a lot of stuff we don't understand about whales. We know even less about these things. As recently as June of 2020, of this year, last month as we record this, we learned new stuff about these Monsters, a juvenile version of them washed up on the shores of South Africa. This is not the first time it happened, but this creature was already 13 feet long. That's baby size for these guys, right? It's a mini me of a giant squid, but it was just about two years old. We also don't know how long they live, we don't know how big they grow while they're alive. Uh, and they're not the only thing out there. I mean, I I say we go full Lovecraft. Let's point out that the ocean is also home to giant deep sea worms. And when we say giant, we mean giant. They also glow in the dark. So, you know, these
0: guys, well, uh, as individuals, wouldn't necessarily be considered in the same um, league Haha, uh-huh. that's a that's a sea pun as well as the rest of these animals that we're talking about today. Um, they're called pyrosomes, and they're free-floating uh, tunicates. They're also known as the unicorns of the sea. Um, and, but they're they're pretty big. They're, you know, they're big enough for a human to ride. But they also kind of create these massive swarms. Um, they're soft and, and delicate, like some sort of like feather boa, perhaps. And um, again, like Ben off, off mic uh, pointed out that these are really in kind of on a technicality, sea monster by default. That's because each of the worms is actually a colony of uh, thousands of individual creatures, and the individuals themselves are super tiny. Uh, it's almost like they operate in this crazy hive mind type situation.
2: Yeah, yeah. They're like a a big commune, you know, and jellyfish often also are are creatures of colony or hive. But these giant sea worms are also, we should mention, because... Chekhov's gun rule, right? We did, we did name drop Lovecraft, so we have to follow up on that. These worms are not eldritch objects of worship, sleeping beneath the waves for aeons, waiting for the stars to be right. This is not a case of that is not dead, which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons, even death may die kind of thing. It's not, it's, we're not at Cthulhu level yet, but... Matt, Noel, while we are on the subject of waking ancient creatures, it's time to ask, what about the other monsters? We have sea monster news for you. Well, as we stated before, we've been talking about
1: giant monsters, right? We've been describing monsters as something that is monstrous in its size. But there could be something very dangerous very frightening that isn't giant. That could be discovered down below the depths. And we have some news for you. This year, scientists made a discovery that future historians will <laughs> doubtlessly call Classic 2020. You know why? They found 100 million year old microbes beneath the seafloor in the South Pacific Gyre. This is a site east of Australia where ocean currents intersect, and this is considered to be one of the the areas of the ocean that has the least amount of life, right? Some of the deadest parts of the ocean where it's almost, there's almost no nutrients here that animals need to survive. The scientists dug down very far, 5,700 meters below sea level, and they found something that had been in a Lovecraftian
2: way, slumbering since before the age of men. Yeah, these things looked as though they were dead. Uh, and, and it's already a great find, you know, go science. This is already a groundbreaking discovery to find evidence of these things that were once alive. Uh, so they brought them back to the lab. They brought the clay cores they had dug up, as, as you had mentioned, Matt, back to their lab. Where they found these microbes, and they said, "Oh wow, this is amazing! There was once life in this part of uh, the South Pacific Gyre." I don't know. Let's feed them, which which sounds weird, right? It's a lot like finding a dead body and saying, ah, "Let's do, let's put a sandwich by it." Let's just <laughs> come on, let's put a sandwich by it. It's just between us. We're all we're all buddies here. Uh, and what happened is that these microbes, these dead bodies got up and ate the sandwich. And what (laughs) happened after that is they started reproducing. They started breeding something that had been dormant for uh, millions of years just came back to life. One of the scientists, and I love when scientists talk this way, one of the scientists said that this indicates the insane possibility. Whenever scientists use the word (laughs) insane, you know, they're... you know something rocked them. Uh, this scientist said that these very same microbes must have been, or may have been, probably were sitting in the same place for aeons, and that—that that is pure Lovecraftian stuff. Lovecraft was a terrible person, uh, not a great writer, uh, but a fantastic world builder, and the idea of undersea creatures slumbering and being awoken by man. Now we can say in 2020, this happened. This happened. Lovecraft is, in a way, real now. And that's just the beginning. If we go back to the statistics, what Matt and I talked about at the beginning of this episode, we see some possibilities this story isn't over given what little we know about the ocean again very little it is scientifically indisputably true that we do not at this point know every single species of life currently living in there or you know sleeping for dreamless dark millennia and given the global reach of sonar and other detection methods radar etc sure it's plausible to say we have a solid chance of detecting an undiscovered life form if it ticks a few boxes
0: That's right. Um, It really needs to have a relatively large population. Uh, It needs to be pretty frequently on the move and spend at least some time in that smaller part of the ocean that we talked about, that metropolis that we study pretty extensively. Um, And it also is helpful if it preys a lot on other easily detected uh, species. But um, if it doesn't exhibit these traits, our odds of finding drop quite significantly.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's going to be hard for us to just accidentally stumble upon something new, right? If it doesn't have that large population and all those things we just listed. Does anybody else feel like it's a bad idea to awaken aeons old microbes? Just in case maybe there's something involved there that happen to help the extinction process with yes
2: you know life on earth
1: <laughs> yes
0: yes I do I do I do think that thing Matt
2: roll know. the dice <laughs> I uh you know what I mean uh it it we are seeing this happen in other places you know it's not just underwater uh well I guess it kind of is because under ice yeah because ice you know is just just fancier water so yeah <laughs> Ice is fancy water. Great. That's our takeaway. Please just remember that out of all the stuff we did today. But yeah, you know, you make an excellent point there, Noel, because uh, we can, this isn't just speculation on our part. We know that the discovery of extremophiles took forever creatures that live by these geothermal vents on the ocean floor they are living off the energy exuded from those vents so they're not consuming a uh, very well known other species uh, they're not moving around a lot because they have to be by those vents to survive so with those two pieces missing it would take us a while to find them and this leaves us with um two notes you know one is disturbing, one is distressing, or one's, one's a little more emo, a little sad. Let's go with that one first. It may well be that we do discover some gigantic species, some real life sea monster, sea serpent, what have you, but we discover it after it becomes functionally extinct. We find the last of a relic population. Uh, we find that they are unable to breed. Uh, we find that the Anthropocene has signed their death warrant, and we are just seeing the dying echoes of what they once were. Our species like, oh, look that-
1: at that poor coelacanth.
2: Yep. There was only one. Yep. Look, it's the last kraken, the uh, new film by Wes Anderson. The kraken oh, is man. played by Edward Norton.
0: And as it turns oh. out, the kraken, uh, a perfectly symmetrical creature. So that really works out for
1: his uh, mise-en-scene. I was really hoping you were going to say Bill Murray, but uh, we can
2: go with it. Oh, no, no, wait, wait, change it. Kraken is Bill Murray. Uh, you heard it here Oh, my first. God.
0: This this can be a crossover between the Stuff They Don't Want You to Know Cinematic Universe and the Ridiculous History Cinematic Universe, where we have a movie coming out in the December of this year for Christmas called Hans about a horse that could solve math problems, played by, uh, who did we say, Daniel Day-Lewis? So Two these, people. These, Yes, that's right. Finn Wolf, <laughs> Finn Wolfhard as the young Clever Hans, and then he grows up into a Daniel Day-Lewis-sized uh, Clever Hans. Uh, but yeah, I love this idea. So
2: this, it's not as Wes Anderson cute if this happens in real life. Our species will encounter a macro level of a type of sadness uh, known as Sonder. If you guys have ever heard this, it's a, it's a manufactured word. All words are manufactured. So, you know, tintinabulation, I don't care. Make up your own words. It's living language. But, Sonder is a really neat word that means the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries, and so on. A story that continues invisibly around you like an anthill sprawling deep underground, and they live a life that you'll never know existed. You might only appear once as someone passing by or a lighted window in the dark. So... Not to be too waxing poetic, but how terrible is it to that we might find something right after we've killed it? Uh, the second thing we have to remember, and this is the real this is a real conspiratorial stuff here. It's a bit of a thought experiment. A lot of the knowledge that we have about the world's oceans comes from private corporations. It comes from blue ocean navies, both of which are incentivized heavily to keep secrets. So it is possible, not plausible, but possible that something might have been found already and the cost of revealing it to the world were outweighed by the profit motive of keeping something else, uh, a, a margin, right? Uh, or a promising dig, or maybe, you know, you're a military, you've detected something you detected some big animal on its last legs uh but if you tell people you discovered it then they'll know you have some sort of classified detection technology and then boom billions of dollars uh down the Mariana's trench there I don't think I probably that's not happening that's just that's it's like a comic book level exciting world
1: I don't think you're off base there at all then I I feel all of that Specifically, the classified detection tech, because i I want to believe that there are more efficient forms of the kinds of detection technologies that we have now that just we can't that can't be shared. you're right for proprietary
2: reasons and now again, like you say, man Matt, I really appreciate that support there, or dare I say? Enabling, you might be enabling us a little bit, listeners. <laughs> but
1: and that doesn't mean
2: extraterrestrial
1: technology. It just means advanced technology.
2: Yeah, agreed. And while this idea of uh, sea monsters, if to put it in a sentence, this idea that sea monsters exist and are being hidden by, you know, uh, an oil conglomerate or a, uh, a navy, a blue water navy of some sort, while it definitely sounds like sci-fi uh, comic book stuff or fodder for an excellent screenplay, eh, a sci-fi channel screenplay, the truth <laughs> is stranger things have happened out there beneath the the waves. So what do you think, listeners? Now we hand, uh, you know what, like the meme, you're the captain now. So what do you think could be out there?
1: You have the trawler. You, you're you in control. <laughs> um, yeah, but honestly, what, what do you think is out there? Is there anything that you have seen when you've been out on the ocean or maybe in the ocean on a dive? Maybe you've been in a submersible before. We would love to hear about your experience, or maybe you've worked on a rig. Ooh, that would be cool. Tell us about that. Anything you want to mention that we've discussed on this episode, or if you want to give us a suggestion for another episode, you can find us. We're all over social media. On Instagram, we are Conspiracy Stuff Show. On Facebook and Twitter, we're Conspiracy Stuff. Yes, all of these things are true. And.
0: In addition, if you want to get in on the fun with your fellow conspiracy realists, why not head over to Facebook and join our group? Here's where it gets crazy. Easiest thing in the world. Just name one, two, three of us, a super producer to all of us. Make a joke that makes Ben laugh. Reference something that's in an episode. Whatever. We're pretty easy, and you're in um, a great place to share memes and just have conversation. Couldn't be a cooler group of folks on there. Here's where it gets crazy on Facebook. And, hey, while you're at it, while you're on the Internet, why not go over to Apple Podcasts? podcast and leave us a glowing review uh, because it really does help kind of bump the show up in, uh, in the, uh, the rankings and also helps people discover it. And as we're entering this brave new world of our five days a week thing, let us know how you dig it um, and do it in a public
2: forum so others will follow in your path. And if you are one of the people out there who says, I listen to your Facebook episode, I don't know why I would be on that. Social media in general is a bag of badgers that's for the birds. But I do have a phone and I have a story to tell you. Well, you are in luck, fellow conspiracy realists. You can call us any old time of day or night at one 833 std You'll have a uh, three-ish minutes ballpark. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Let us know whether or not we can use your story on air. Uh, and then also, you know, if, if you feel the pressure of that ticking Clock for that three-minute time window, uh, why not just write down a couple things, talking points, and you can refer to those? That that made it easier for me when I called into our own show for some reason. Uh, but hey Matt, what Matt, no, uh a lot of times people don't like social media or uh telephones, which we totally get. If you are one of those folks, you are still in luck. You are uh, Trebly, T-R-E-B-L-Y, in luck because you can send us a good old-fashioned email anytime the spirit moves you. We are
1: Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
6: Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo.